the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 389 from Monday, April 2nd, 2012. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show you send in some questions you send in your tips you send in cool stuff found we do our level best to answer your questions provide tips of our own provide cool stuff found of our own and all together now we learn something new at least one thing at least five things what's the number today guys it's uh it's at least six things new per show per episode uh all right yeah here in new hampshire durham new hampshire to be specific i'm dave hamilton here in fearful connecticut John F. Braun and back in another part of Durham, New Hampshire, next to Dave is Pilot Pete. Thanks for having me back, guys. Oh, it's good to have you, man. It's good to, uh, yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. Been a while. Been working too hard. Yeah. Yeah. But it's... the world is safer for it. You believe me, don't you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, all right. Uh, you know what, John? Let's just dive in. I'm sure we'll get into our Splash. various and sundry dive, brother. crazy things. But uh, starting with Chris. Chris says, I recently upgraded to Lion. I thought I was taking the correct route, but I must have jumped the tracks somewhere. First, I used the Mac App Store installer to upgrade from Snow Leopard to Lion. Then, wanting to do a clean install of Lion, I restarted to the recovery partition and erased the data on the main data partition. I thought leaving the recovery partition intact. Then I proceeded to install Lion and manually migrate data from backups. This worked great, and now I have a perfectly functioning Lion installation. However, when trying to turn on File Vault 2, I was informed that File Vault could not be enabled because the Lion recovery partition did not exist. Surprised, I googled and found out how to locate the recovery partition using the terminal list command of diskutil. It appears I do not have a recovery partition anymore. Further, I tried restarting using command R and was greeted by Lion Internet Recovery, as described in uh, Apple's Knowledge Base article on the subject. I guess I will now be rerunning the Lion installer and try to create the recovery hard drive uh, or recovery partition. Do you have any advice on how to make sure this partition gets created? I have backups, so nuke and pave options are fine. Can you help choose the right path that will properly create the Lion recovery HD? The following seem to be my options, but I'm looking for advice. Number one, uh, Lion recovery disk assistant described in Apple's knowledge base article. Uh, since I don't have a recovery uh, partition, I, the assistant will not run. Number two, I could create a Lion USB installer using the disk image in the App Store installer. Possible, but I don't know if this installation method will create the Lion recovery partition. Uh, I could use Lion Internet recovery and reinstall from Apple's servers, or I could re-download the, the Lion installer from the App Store and try to reinstall. I don't know if this is possible from Lion. Might require Snow Leopard. Uh, all right, so... John, we've got a couple of things to talk about here. Number one is I, I believe that any of these methods of reinstalling Lion will create the Lion recovery partition. I, I think that is sort of a, a universal thing uh, when when installing Lion, doing so from the USB installer that you've created, whatever, it is going to create that partition. What's weird is that Chris built his current lion install from a recovery partition. And now that's gone. I, I have to think that something happened after the fact with, with disk utility or something that caused this partition to get blown away because, you know, the, the installer from that partition would not have erased that partition. It just doesn't seem to make sense. So 
any any thoughts here, John? And and uh, I mean, I'm looking at what he did, and I wonder if it's the step where he said, then wanting to do a clean install, I restarted to the recovery partition and erased the data on the main data partition. Yeah, but that wouldn't erase the recovery partition. He's on the recovery partition, right? That's the part where I scratch my head too. It's like yeah, I don't. I don't I'm wondering know. if it if it marked something or if it. I don't. I don't know if that somehow corrupted it or confused it though. Yeah. Because hey, then he said he migrated his his data from backups, and we we don't know what that process entailed. So and and again, any you know, there's plenty that happened there that he did not detail too. I'm sure. Could have been could have been anywhere that he lost this recovery partition. But as far as I know, uh, well, so we, we did some research, right, John? And there are two ways to create a recovery partition on an existing Lion install. Number one is reinstall from any method. And, and that will do it. Number two involves building a recovery partition or have, finding another Mac that has one. And then copying and then and then using the disk utility in the terminal to make room on the disk for it and and like shoehorning it in. It's a it looked like a big fiasco to me uh, when I read through it, John. It, and I, it, it it's the kind of thing that makes me say, no, 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 no. You want this done the right way. Uh, I'm with you. I mean, if I had to do this, I would just re download the line installer to me sounds the most most straightforward way of, of doing this to make sure it takes hold well that it, okay so reinstalling lion is easy re-downloading the lion installer is not right if you don't already have a copy of the lion installer then this gets very tricky right because you don't you can't well, what's the, the lion installer uh, well, from within lion uh, well, what's the secret handshake? No, I thought that's right. No, you have to do the secret handshake in the app store where you hold down like the Correct. option and, uh, we'll, we'll link to this, uh, because we could detail it here, but you're not going to remember it any better than we're going to remember it. <laughs> but well, uh, was it you hold down, uh, but if you see it in your app store purchases, was it holding down option and then you'll get a, uh, well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, I certainly don't remember it and it doesn't seem like you do t- either. Oh, I've never had to do it. So. Yeah, I've done it, but you know, Don McAllister did a great blog post about it um, that we will find and and link to, um, and and that's you know, there you go. So yeah, it's it's a whole big thing. You hold down the option key and kick, kick, click on the label. Yeah, yeah, I've got the post here. We'll uh, so yeah, you can open the store, hold down the option key and click on the label. And you click OK on a weird screen. You hold Option and click OK. It's a big, you know, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Just follow along. That's all. So, yeah, that, once you get the Lion installer, then just rerunning it will uh, recreate that partition for you. And then when you're done, you got uh, to rerun the combo updater to get up to the latest build the Lion. Right? Right. All right. I'm convinced. Okay, good. Well, that's all it takes. <laughs> we have we now have the John F. Braun stamp of approval. Win writes. Greetings, Pilot Pete, Dave, and John. I have a self-inflicted issue that I need help recovering from. I recently got my dream machine, a 2011 27-inch iMac. Uh, from the refurb store for Christmas. I have upgraded to the machine to 12 gigs of RAM by adding 8 gigs myself. The machine replaced an aging Mac Mini that I could not upgrade due to a manufacturing defect. 
Uh, it says, my oldest daughter uh, borrowed my wife's polycarbonate unibody MacBook and promptly spilled a fruit juice drink onto the keyboard. Needless to say, it died an untimely death. That's not the problem, believe it or not. Daughter is alive and well, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, since my wife needed a machine, I decided to give her my three and a half year old MacBook Pro. I hooked up the MacBook Pro to the iMac and migrated my account from the laptop to the iMac. Not a problem yet. I harvested my wife's hard drive from the dearly departed and transplanted it to the MacBook Pro. The machine came up just fine and is just like her old machine, except for the shorter battery life, heavier weight, aluminum, hotter running and larger screen. Still not the problem. What I need to do is migrate my email from account number two on the iMac to account number one and then blow away account number two. Uh, I searched the TMO website and did all my Google food, but have not come up with a solution that I'm confident will work. The account has mail in it since 2004 when I kicked my last Windows machine to the recycler and got a G4 iBook. I have already integrated the documents from account number one to account number two. So he took the data from his MacBook Pro that he was going to repurpose for his wife and he just dumped it all into a separate account on his iMac. And now he wants to merge that up. And he's done it with all of his documents and all of that, because that's very, very straightforward. Uh, now he wants to do this with his mail data. Here's the thing. It, too, is straightforward if you know what to do. And that's sort of the trick. Uh, and, and the trick is, is this. Uh, quit mail. Uh, go into the home library mail folder on the account from which you want to copy it. So the account with the data. And then copy that whole folder, home library mail, from that account to the one uh, in the in the account that you want to use. Um, obviously, if there's you're going to be replacing, maybe not obviously, so I'll state it. You're going to be replacing data on the account that you're copying it to. So it will completely wipe out anything that you've got uh, on that, in his case, account number one. But uh, copy that folder. And then after doing that, you want to make sure you have permissions right. And the easiest way to do that is to do a get info on this um, folder that you've copied and make permissions uh, as such. You want owner to be yourself and you want to have read and write. And then you want staff and everyone to have read only that will match what would happen on the system by default. Once you set that, there's one step left. There's a little gear icon at the bottom of the, fi the finders get info window. Choose that and in there, choose apply to enclosed items, and then that will set the permissions that way for all of your mail. And then you should be good to go. And uh -huh. it won't revert back on a permissions repair or anything? No, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but um, that's a good question, Pete. Permissions repair that happens in disk utility does not touch anything in your user folder. Oh, good. Okay. Permissions repair is a system-wide thing. Your user folder... Um, it is is sort of has its own permissions and the system doesn't mess with it. If you need to fix your user folders permissions, you can do that, but you have to boot from the recovery partition and then you have to run a terminal command. It's hidden. It, it wasn't hidden in Snow Leopard, but it is hidden. Um, let me pull up the uh, the article so I get this command right. Uh, repair user permissions. Jim did one of these for us back in September of 2011. How to Repair User-Level Permissions in Mac OS X. And so uh, in Snow Leopard, when you would run Disk Utility, there was a reset password option in the menu. And on that, there was uh, an, uh, uh, an option for resetting your home folder permissions. 
that is gone now. So what you have to do is uh, go to the terminal. You have to go to your Lion Recovery Partition, then go to the terminal and type, which you can get to from the utilities menu. And then you have to type reset password all together. There's one word, no spaces and hit return. That launches this same thing. And then you get the same deal that you could have done and, and you choose reset. Uh, you're not going to reset the password, but you're going to use this utility to, uh, to reset your permissions. So I don't know okay. why they took it out of the utilities menu in, uh, in Lion. If anybody knows and, and wants to tell us that would be great, but, uh, but it's still there is the good part. You just have to run it from the terminal. So John, I'll, I'll give you, the magic link huh? to this article to put in our show notes too. I wonder if they study how many people self-inflict problems with things like that at, uh, at customer support and go, yeah, let's take that out of the general population's ability to get to it unless they know what they're doing. And I wonder why we don't have the ability to reset home folder permissions uh, from within yeah. disk utility. That's the, cause, but, because you're right. The reset password thing is something you might want to bury. Yeah. But resetting these home folder permissions, it happens often enough where and, and I think people believe that the I certainly did believe that the reset permissions inside or, or, or uh, repair permissions actually fix those and they don't. So, yeah. The one thing I'd like to add is I think you may want to also copy over, Dave, in the, in the same uh, library director. But there's also a mail downloads folder. Maybe you want to copy that over as well. Is that in Lion now? Or did that? Oh, I see moved? it on my Lion machine. Right, but did you? Um, and there are files that are, are are days old in there, so I believe that's still used as well. So if you want yeah, attachments, you're right. you're right. So yeah. copy that over and do 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 what he said. <laughs> yeah, that yeah you can. I I mean mail. Um, it, that's it's like that's more like a temp folder that mail downloads thing, uh, because the the attachments are actually still stored inside each of your mail messages. But when you go to use one of those attachments, it, um, it has to save it as a file. So if you get an email with a word document, right, the, the word document is buried in the email as a, as an enclosure. But if you want to open that word document, it has to save it out to the disc and then let you open it. So, so that mail downloads folder becomes like a temp folder. And I think um, you have an option where are those? There's a, there's an option for what to do with those attachments, right? Uh, oh yeah, there it is. So in mail preferences, general, uh, there's an option that says remove unedited downloads and you can choose never when mail quits or after messages deleted. So, um, so, and that's where they go is in that mail downloads folder. Handy little tip. So if you have it set to when mail quits, that folder should be fairly empty um, again, unless you've edited it. You know, if you in the case of a Word document, if you launch Word and edit it, even though it's saving it in mail downloads, once it's edited, mail says, oh, I'm not going to touch that because you've you know, it's not the same as what would be in the message if we double clicked again. OK, good stuff, right? Fantastic. What is what is your set to do set to inside mail, John? Is it set to when mail quits? I think that's the default. In um, go if you go into mail and go to yeah. uh, preferences general. Yep. What does what the remove unedited downloads option set to? After message is deleted. Um, is that and is that what yours is set to as well, Pete? I don't know. You don't know. Okay. 
All right. I'm just curious what the default is. I thought it was when mail quits, but I may have set that to be aggressive and keep that folder from overfilling because I don't delete email typically. I, I pretty I primarily use Gmail. So oh I yeah, okay. For, oh. I do use it for work, but I use Google Apps for all my uh, got it. own personal domain. Got it. All right. Well, there you go. You can, folks, you can set that on your own uh, to whatever you like. All right. Uh, next. Next. Marvin. Shh. Marvin? Right? What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Marvin. Marvin. Yeah. Yeah. I was jumping the gun. That's okay. Uh, Marvin, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's a question or not, but it is a good thing to point out. Uh, Marvin writes, uh, I often CC myself on emails I send so that I will have a tickler uh, for follow-up. I recently discovered that if I delete the CC'd version of the email in Apple Mail, it now also deletes the sent message from my sent folder. This wouldn't be interesting at all, except for the advanced IMAP features, which are supposed to help Apple Mail play nice with Gmail. I've enabled the advanced IMAP features in Gmail and hidden the all mailbox as a label in IMAP. Auto expunges off, and when a message is marked and deleted and expunged from the last visible IMAP folder, it is moved to trash. Uh, with these settings, the problem I have described should not occur because the message should still be visible in the sent folder on IMAP. I haven't found anything on the web about this and would be curious about your thoughts. Yeah, so so here's a little bit of a public service announcement by way of answering uh, uh, Marvin's question here. Mail app changed behavior in Lion from Snow Leopard. Previously, if you had CC'd yourself, uh, you would get a copy of your message in the uh, sent folder, as you would expect. And then you also get a copy of the message in your inbox because you just sent yourself a message. If you deleted the one in your inbox, the one in your sent folder would stay there. Now, though, in Lion, if you delete the one that shows up in your inbox, it also deletes the one in your sent folder. At least if you're using uh, Gmail as your server. I don't know if this is a universal problem. Uh, or issue or behavior, I should say. I don't Some people may not see this as a problem. So uh, I don't know if this is a universal behavior change or if it's only a change if you're using Gmail. Of course, many people are, so it may be effectively universal. But uh, but that changed the moment uh, I started using Lion's mail app. So that's a that's an important distinction to uh, to know about. Make sense, John? Questions? Sure. Thoughts? Good. No. Time yeah. for Michelle. Time for Michelle. Go. Michelle writes, I'm fairly new to Aperture, as am I. And to say the least, it's a bit overwhelming, which I agree it is. <laughs> I'm trying to organize my photos, add keywords, and add short descriptions. The problem, Aperture makes doing so as difficult as wrangling cats. Do you find wrangling cats difficult, Dave? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Got to get a really good net. So she says a few things. Long catch pole. <laughs> so while I can assign a keyword to a single photo, I can't seem to select a bunch of photos at once and select the same keyword for all the photos in a project. Um, so one thing she's doing, which is good, is creating a project. That's one of the fundamental ways to group photos within, uh, within Aperture. Okay. And I think iPhoto as well. Uh, now, iPhoto, I think, is more albums than projects. They're, they're, they're That's somehow right. related. Right. Okay. But I, I do projects. So that's a good way to group things. Um, it seems clunky to have to add a keyword to the first photo and then select the stamp tool for remaining photos. Is there a better, faster way? And you know what? I don't think I have to have to read the rest here. 
because okay. I think I, I stumbled across it. So I'm looking right now. So I have Aperture in front of me and I have two photos. Now you can certainly highlight a single photo and then there's a metadata menu. Okay. And there's a few choices here. You can say add keyword. And there's a bunch of predefined ones. You can say remove keyword or you can say new keyword. So that's certainly a way to apply keyword to a photo. But then there's a better way. So if you click on, and I'm clicking right now, so, so there's a bunch of ways to view photos. Um, well, both on the left-hand side. So, so there's different ways to view what, what you have. One is by projects, by photos, by faces, and that's under the library menu on the left here. So I'm having it on photos, and I have a group of photos uh, selected. And then I click on browser. What you can do is either using the mouse, you can highlight a group of photos, or you can use, you know, our friendly keyboard shortcuts. You can click on one, hold down shift, click on another. And that will select multiple photos in the view. And then what you do, and I think it's just because the wording of this may be, may be kind of foreign here, is in the metadata menu, there is a batch change dialog. So batch just means do something to a bunch of things, but it may not have been clear. And within the batch change menu, there is then uh, towards the bottom, something that says add metadata from, and normally it's set to none. So you may not know that this is going to do what you need, but then if you click on that none menu and say basic info, you're then going to see a group of things that you can set in the photo. One is caption, one is keywords, and then it has city, state, image, country, copyright notice. So here's what you do. You highlight the photos, do batch change, click on keywords, and then type in a keyword that you like to apply to the photos that you've just selected. And it'll do them all in one fell swoop. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that. that's exactly what she wants. Interesting. Right. Now, the way to locate them, that's not quite as straightforward. And the way you do that is in the upper right-hand corner. Um, yeah, I, I, you'll, you'll see a little magnifying glass. Um. And if you click in this field, all of a sudden you will see a filter colon photos dialog. And it'll say any of the following that match, blah, blah, blah. And you'll see a bunch of conditions here. And I think the defaults are rating, flagged, color labels, texts. You may not see keywords there. So what you then do is click on, and I think we've learned it's called either the action menu or the gear menu. So what you do then is you click on the gear menu and one of the choices in there. Oh, hold on. Sorry, one of the choices in there should be. Nope. Yeah. I'm Is it giving you your own fits now, John? <clears throat> no, I had it here before. Any of the following match? I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. So add rule. Okay. No, I, I, I clicked. Oh, okay. Do not click. I'm sorry. Don't click on the gear or the action menu. That's the wrong place. Okay. In the upper right hand corner of the filter photos window, you're going to see add rule. Okay. And there's going to be a number of things you can set rules by. Some may be listed already. And the one that you want is called keywords. There it is. Yeah. And then it's going to add keywords. And if you click on keywords, what it should show you is any of the keywords, uh, custom ones that you've uh, defined. And I did, for example, I did two. I did woo woo and woo woo two. And if I click on woo woo, it shows the one photo that has woo woo. If I click on two, it'll show the one that has that in there. And you can do include any of the following or all of the following. So, like the key here is that, yeah, you, you know, the word batch is probably poorly chosen because it means something to computer people by not mean something to a photographer. So cool. I think that's it. Now, personally, I, yeah. I don't sort that way. I, I typically sort by 
project and date. But yeah, if you want to apply keyword or another thing that, and actually I did this recently because I was choosing photos for a uh, photo contest I was entering. And uh, one thing that I apply and I find uh, helpful for sorting photos, at least temporarily, is applying a label, which is very similar to the one you do in the finder. So you can click on a photo, or you right-click or control-click on a photo, and then label. Now, normally it's blank. But you can make it a color, like red or orange or yellow or all that. And then you can list view your photos and sort by the label, and then it'll group the ones that you've selected, which is how I did this thing. So... Uh, ah. Yeah, so it's a it, it it's a very powerful program, and it it, it, it probably gives you almost too many ways, <laughs> yeah, to uh, to tag your photos. Uh, so so you really, you know, they have a lot of tutorials and in, in the help menu and all that. So you you really want to think ahead of time. Uh, at the very least, uh, again, it sounds like the good strategy here is you know sort. Don't just lump everything in a single project because then you're going to lose any benefit that you're going to get from this program. You know, at the very least, try to group things. I I do it by you know, the date I took the pictures and I put them all in one project, or if it's, you know, multiple themes, then I'll create an individual project for each one. Once I import them from the Wi-Fi. Cool. So, and I believe she got back to us and said, Oh yeah, that, that did it. Yeah. Awesome. Stamp, uh, doing them individually. Is <laughs> oh, that's for the birds. Yeah. That's so I, birds, I'm at, I, uh, my idle curiosity wants to know what types of pictures you would label as woo woo and woo woo too. Although perhaps oh, I don't actually want to ask that question. No. That was just that was just a random term that I typed in there. No, I wanted to see I wanted to see if it was able to differentiate between oh between good thinking. them. Yeah. Awesome. And it was able to well, let, 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 let's see what she said here. Um you want to spend the time while you're looking at that, I mentioned that you know, Don, um, of course, now I go McAllister, McAllister did a three-part screencast online series on Aperture. Uh, shows 239, 240, and 248, which oh, wow. just at two years ago. But um, while it's a pay series, you, you know, it's it's a fairly, I yeah. think, fairly uh, valued uh, uh, product. And it allows you to go back into the archives and get, get those shows. Um, and it shows you all about aperture. So cool. That's how. Uh, all right. Well, the other question she asked. Yeah, I wait, can hang answer. on. Hang on. Do you have, do you have links for those, Pete? Uh, I'll get them. Okay. Put those. We'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Go ahead, John. Sorry. All right. So the other thing she was asking is, how can I see the keywords? And this is another thing that's not immediately obvious. So if you click on a photo, there's going to be three tabs in the upper left hand corner. There's going to be library, metadata, and adjustments. Um, metadata is going to show you all sorts of things. And, and at least in my case, and I think this is the default, it's set to EXIF info, which is the data that's embedded in the photo. And that will be typically the time and data was taken, the make of the camera, the model, the ISO, all of the te technical aspects. Well, if you click on the thing that says EXIF info, there's going to be a number of other uh, options there. And there's one called caption and keywords. And if you click on that, you're going to see the keyword assigned to that specific photo. So that answers the second question. Again, yeah. there's a lot of stuff here. And what it shows you by default is, uh, until I looked for this, it wasn't clear to me how to see keywords. I looked at the first menu and I'm like, Where, where's keyword? It's not there. <laughs> So, so it's very powerful, but you got, you got to, you got to poke around in a lot of the menus here or, or again, go through the tutorials to learn all this stuff here. But, uh, all right. Uh, we've got a, uh, an interesting thing that Mark brought up here, but first, uh, for, about, uh, sharing and permissions. And, uh, and I think we've got a solution, at least I think John, you've found a solution for it, but, uh, but first I want to 
talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is uh, one of our favorites, Smile Software. I think, frankly, all of our sponsors are, are some of our favorite apps. Uh, but this is one of those apps. We're ta- what we're talking about today is Text Expander. And this is one of those apps that I can't live without on my Mac. My my fingers are so ingrained with my text expander shortcuts that if I'm using uh, my Mac without it, you know, like when I set up a new Mac or I have to reinstall or something, I, I feel, you know, crippled. Uh, it, it's just it, it it frees me up so much. So text expander at its core, what it does is it allows you to do uh, on the fly text replacement. You take uh, something that you would type, maybe your address. Uh, You can format it any way you want. Uh, You can, you know, so for my address, I would have, you know, my, uh, my, my street on a different line from my, uh, you know, my, my city and state and all that stuff. You format it any way you want. You put it in as a, as a, uh, as a snippet, and then you have a shortcut. And, you know, for that, I have comma D H A D D for Dave Hamilton address. And I also have one for John. I have comma JBADD. And that way, if I need to put our addresses into an email, I just type that and boom, it's there. I don't have to worry about making typos. I save the time and I can I can do all kinds of stuff. Like when I'm sending people a link to the show, I'll copy the link uh, to the clipboard and then I have some text that I'll send. And I might say, you know, comma MGG mention. And it puts this whole block of text in pasting the URL of the show in exactly the right spot in the middle. So you can totally customize how this works. You can even have uh, have it pull data in like the date. Uh, you can have it run an Apple script. It's like massively customizable uh, and it really saves a ton of time. What's also cool is if you use multiple Macs, you know, you build your shortcuts on one. You want those everywhere. Well, you can sync with Dropbox. And it'll actually sync these uh, shortcuts to all your Macs. So when you make an edit on one, that shortcut's now on everything. And that can be hugely powerful. You know, if I come up here to the studio, I don't have to worry. Oh, did I do that snippet edit here? Or did I edit it in the office? It doesn't matter. It's everywhere. Totally sync, totally real time. And uh, it's fantastic. I, 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 I couldn't live without it. I said that at the beginning. Uh, come and check it out. Uh, smilesoftware.com. You can download a free trial there, and that's what I recommend you do. But when you're ready to buy, it's thirty-five bucks, thirty-four ninety-five. You can buy it right there on their website, uh, smilesoftware.com. They also have Text Expander Touch, which allows you again to sync. Uh, it's five bucks. You have to buy that, of course, in the App Store because that's how iOS apps work. Uh, it works on your iPhone or your iPad, and uh, and you can do a lot of the same stuff in there too. And so many apps support Text Expander Touch. So uh, so go ahead and check it out. Uh, all at smilesoftware.com text expander to make your life better because that's what it does. And now on to Mark as promised. Oh boy, this is a good one. Yeah. So, yeah. I will start off and then maybe you want to no, give no, your no, the- let, you have the solution, but let me illustrate the problem because I've been through this and I, and I, I think, I think I can set this up fairly well here. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's my job. Of course, I can't find the uh, file access permission. There we are. Okay. So uh, Mark writes, uh, as my family and friends, Mac person, I stumble on a network problem for a friend of mine. And I, I experienced this here too, John. It try and it drives me crazy. Uh, I found a workaround, but it's not really elegant. The two Macs are involved in a small office environment. 
one iMac that is used by the boss with all the admin privileges and a Mac mini that's used by the employee to give access to some of the documents on the iMac. They shared a folder to the other user using the mini with read and write access up to that point. Everything goes smoothly. The issue comes when the minis user wants to share back something. They save the file on the shared folder, but the iMacs user has only read access to that file. Of course, we can change the permissions on a file by file basis, but that seems very cumbersome. We've asked many specialists. To, nobody has a solution. So you're turning. So he says, I'm turning to your advice. And, and I've had this same problem, too. Uh, we share files on various machines. And it drives me crazy when, you know, Lisa uh, will save a file on the machine that she uses for accounting. And I go to see that file and I can read it because I have access to the shared folder. But even though the folder has permission for both of us to write to it, each file that we create in that folder is only writable by the person who created it. And it's crazy. It seems like that's what, you know, what's the point of file sharing if we can't edit the same files? And then we have to go in and change permissions, just like Marcus said. And I never thought about researching another solution until Mark's question came in because I thought, oh, I want this answer. Well, I spent a lot of time researching this and I could not for the life of me find a good answer. I, it seems like and and I still think that there might be a better answer here, but it seems like ACLs are were built to solve this problem because you the idea behind access control list is you create a folder you assign permissions via ACL to that folder and then everything in the folder inherits those permissions and, and any new files inherit those permissions. And that's what it's supposed to do. And that's what happens. But it seems like file sharing on the Mac does not does not honor ACLs, And that's that that was my issue. And so then I I asked, of course, my esteemed colleague here, Mr. John F. Braun, and he took it and ran with it. So, John. And I ran, stumbled. <laughs> no, I ran with it, and I found an answer, believe it or not. Now, you identified the, the foundation of the solution, Dave, because I had not really looked at this before. I, I may have been aware of it. But you found that, at least under the current version of OS X... It's been this way for a while, too, but yeah. Sir. Yes, it has been. Yeah. Um, so there is a command that is run, I'm sure, at some point during startup called UMask. And what that does is set the default permissions on a file when it's created. It's and a, the it, default value is now it's weird because it's, it's actually, kind of a reverse. It it, it, apply, it it actually defines what cannot be done. Right. right? That's right. But and and just to be clear, UMask is actually run um, is set for each user as they log in. So the system will have a UMask, and then when you log in as your user. A UMask is set, but it's it's always set to the same thing on Mac OS 10. But, but go ahead. It's it, yeah, it runs at startup, but actually it runs at login. Just just to, to throw that right out there. Yeah. So the default is UMask 2.2. Now, if you know anything about Unix permissions, basically you have three levels of permissions and three settings within each one of those. Uh, so what, what UMask 2.2 is really doing is saying. All right. For the owner, allow read and write. But for group or everyone only allow read right that that's right now just just to be entirely clear there are two different types of permissions that can happen in OS 10 there is what we talked about access control lists um 
those are those are kind of the the the, the newer fangled permissions and the more customizable. But what we're talking about with UMask here is is essentially what's called POSIX permissions or portable operating system interface permissions, which are the very bare bones. Uh, you've got three different uh, sets of permissions, like you said, John, the user, the group and and everyone or the owner, the group and everyone. And uh, and each person can have read or write, read and or write and or execute permissions as part of that group. So somewhat customizable, but limited. Right. Right. So how do you see what the value is? Well, hey, you can go to the terminal and type UMask and it'll tell you what it is. And for example, in my Snow Leopard machine here, it says 22, which, as we mentioned, is the default. I, I, I think it, it. Oh, yeah, it does just report 22. I'd always in the Unix world, I'd always seen it as reported as a three digit number. So zero two two. But but you're right. It's two two. Yeah. So then I initiated Google Foo mode and I found an article and it sounded somewhat applicable, but it was titled Mac OS 10 server 10.5, 10.6, setting a custom UMask. I'm like, well, I'm not using Mac OS 10 server. And I, I assume no one here is, but it does tell you how to set a custom UMask. So I'm like, you know what? Let me try it. And what they suggested worked. So one thing you can do is you can create a file slash etc slash launch d dash user dot conf. And I think that's important because it's only setting the UMask for certain for for user applications. There are ways to set it for other things like system processes, and I think we definitely don't want to go there. But at least for this application, this worked. So I created a file. I actually had to say, I think what did I do? Uh, I think I said sudo space nano because when I tried initially, it wouldn't let me write, create the file. Sure. So I said sudo space nano space slash etc slash launch the dash user dot conf, and within that, I put in just one line, and I said UMask space. And I figure, you know what? I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to say zero, zero, zero. Let's allow everybody to do everything. Now, the security people out there are probably going to cringe in horror at this. And, and, and actually, we're looking for feedback on this because so I did this, saved the file, rebooted the system. When I went to the terminal, it now said UMask. I think it said zero, 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 or just zero. And I'm right. like, right. okay, well, that seemed to work. Then what I did is I launched text edit and I created a document saved it. And then I went to the finder, did get info and looked at the permissions and lo and behold, well, before what would happen is if you looked at the permissions for the owner, it would be read and write. And for the other two groups, it would be read only. After I rebooted and set this new UMask, when I did get info and looked at the permissions, it made me very happy because now the permissions were read and write for all groups for this document. And then I, you know, went through the same motions here. I saved a document to a uh, to a share on a on a distant machine with one user. Saved it, then logged in as a different user, actually a standard user, and I was able to access it. And it was funny because when I tried to access one of the older files, I actually got a warning from a text edit saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You don't know the you don't own this file, man. I can't let you write to it. I'll let you create a duplicate, but then right. that breaks your workflow." Yeah, so it's smart enough to know, yeah. and it offered a it offered kind of a yeah, fallback. But then, yeah, then you got a mess. Then you got two different documents. Uh, you know, the goal here is that it sounds like everybody wants to work on the same document. Right. So, right. so I solved it. Now, again, I, I, I suspect the direction you want to take, Dave, is that ACLs are probably the proper way to do this. But I'm wondering if this is a, the other thing I got is that this seems to be a deficiency, at least in the client version of OS 10. From what I could gather, it sounds like OS 10 server. Um, 
implements ACLs properly in that if you put a document in there, it'll inherit the characteristics of the folder that it's put in. And for whatever reason, and, and I found another support article from Apple that kind of hinted at this. It's like, hey, if you're using personal file sharing and you want to share documents among multiple users, it's really not the right thing to do. So buy the server version of OS 10 and these problems should go away. Okay, so uh, just so we're all on the same page, uh, when John says ACLs and I say access control lists or we say ACLs, that's all mm -hmm. the same thing. Uh, so and 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 yeah, so the the issue and perhaps I'm over paranoid about this um, in, a, in a weird twist where I'm actually more concerned about security than John, which is, you know, very, very strange uh, uh, uncharted waters for us here. But uh but it seems, you know, what what you're doing with that solution and it works, right? I mean, there's no question about it. This this solves that problem. But what's happening is we're not we're setting the user. We're setting the default permissions on any file. And that's important. Any file that that user creates on that system uh, to be read writable by everyone, right? With your zero, zero, zero permissions. And you don't have to do zero, zero, zero. You probably right. set it to two and, and you'd be just think, fine. Yeah. I yeah. think two would, would work. I think the key here is that you're changing the group permission. That seems to be right where it's being overly restrictive. But my response to your concern, Dave, is that as long as you properly protect the shared folder, which you can certainly do in sharing, you can say, okay, only let this person into this folder and if you do, you can set it at a granular enough level with personal file sharing where you can say, OK, this user can read and write to this folder. This user can only read documents. So, so I think as long as you protect the contents uh, at the folder level, uh, you see what I'm saying? I, I don't do. know if I'm too concerned about the, the access rights of the individual file, because if you can't get to the folder, you can't get to the file normally. Right. As long as they're only, OK, now I understand. As long as their only way into the system is via file sharing, you're right, because personal file sharing in OS 10 will let you set a folder and who can read and write to it. Uh, but it's not doing it. The, the UMass will override that. And, and, and you're right that that would make it um, the they have to work in concert with each other. But you're right. Uh, but the problem is if that person has shell access to your Mac. So if that person can get to your Mac with a terminal now they have access to every file that you create because your UMask is set in such a way that every file you create is readable and writable by the group. And it's just not the default, not the standard default, right? Typically, any file you create is readable by everyone, but only writable, only changeable by you. And by setting this UMask, the launch D user, it's changing it for every user on the system that logs in. Every file they create will be read write by everyone. And that just seems it it seems like there should be a better way and of course the better way is access control lists, but as you pointed out, it sure seems like personal the personal file sharing server in the regular non-server version of Mac OS 10 does not honor access control lists in this way. And that's the that's the problem. That's the, the core of the problem. So I'm not sure if there's more to this, uh, but if if somebody out there knows and says, oh, yeah, you can get it to honor access control list. You have to, you know, tweak this configuration or do that. Tell us. I'd love to know because I'd love a better, more granular solution to this problem uh, rather than just making it so that every file my user creates is uh, is set to read right by the world. Yeah. 
Good. Pretty much. I'm. Yeah. Th- I, this is where our our community can help us here. Perhaps. Uh, but, yeah. You know, in that what what are the risks of changing the user application UMask to O O two versus O two two? Yeah. Or you just make every, you know, do what I do. I make everybody administrator. <laughs> then everybody well, but, can do everything. Yeah, but even if, <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, both uh, on this computer here that I'm on, right? Lisa and I are both administrators and we have a folder on here that contains our QuickBooks files. Uh, and it's fine because there's only four QuickBooks files in there. And once we've created the file, they don't change. But sometimes there'll be some data corruption or something and, and we'll want to rebuild the file. And whenever we do that, I lose access to that file from my computer. I can read it, but I can't write to it. And QuickBooks won't launch if it can't write to the data file. So then I have to log in via the terminal and change the permissions on this file. But we're both super users on this machine. We're both administrators. Okay, because you as an admin, uh, uh, so a normal user level account cannot change permissions on the file. Right. I'm I'm able to change them, but I have to know how to do that. Yeah, it's it's a a pain in the neck. It's a pain in the neck. Fiddle with it because the default is not quite. Right. Okay. I say, oh, and and you, well, the other, the other thing that occurs to me is that you have two account, you have multiple accounts. The thing is yeah. you know, being all by myself here, I obviously only have one administrator account, so I don't run into these problems. Whereas you do. So, right. so your insight on the Macs that I, sh- right. If, if I'm logging into my account on another Mac and sharing a file, it works because I'm logging in as the same account in both places. Mm-hmm. That's right. But yeah, when you've got multiple people, and it seems weird to me, to be honest, you read that little quote from the, the knowledge base article where it said, if you're trying to share files with multiple users, this isn't the place to do it. You should do it with uh, with Mac OS 10 server. It's like, well, why the heck do you have file sharing if you're not meant to share files with multiple users? And why do you have this very misleading uh, preference pane that allows you to set, you know, who gets read and write access when there's this little asterisk that says, well, you can do this, but. Other users mm. will be screwed if they try to access your files. It, it, it seems I, I am. Uh, uh, are you with me on this? Uh, uh, no, I'm with you. It, it seems that the implementation is broken. If it's you busted. have if you have more than one account. Right. Which is the <laughs> whole point. Broken. I mean, that's the idea is you can, you know, remove person's access, add a person's access. It's like it should just that we shouldn't be fighting this battle. And yet we fight this battle. Right. Now, I know who's going to, I certainly hope, hi, Scott, I certainly hope Scott chimes in. I'd love, yeah, uh, Scott, if you've got the magic answer here, I'd love to hear it because uh, I'm sure there's got to be a better way because I just don't. I mean, is OS X kind of broken or or do they need, do they need, do they need to buy the server version to do this properly? Personal file sharing in OS X would be the broken part because the access control lists work. They just, personal file sharing ignores them. Which is the weird, that's the weird part. It's like, it just doesn't honor them. You know, the other thing I was thinking, or would this solve it, is using something like Dropbox or... Yes. Yeah, but Dropbox is doing syncing. I I, I know. You know, that, so, yeah. No, I know. It's not really a document management system. Correct. Or get a document management system where you check things in, check it out, but then, yeah, it's kind of overkill. You should be able to do it in the OS itself. Right. Well, you you can or it's put just, it on a put it on a thumb drive or a. Yeah, but that's crazy. That's why do I want to? Yeah, I know. You know, I know. we have you networks for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Good. Good one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious to see where this one goes. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's do a quick quick run here for Eddie on on this question. Eddie says, 
How can you tell what applications have to be in your applications folder? My problem is that I only have 128 gigs uh, as my OS drive on my SSD. I have a few hefty programs, i.e. Logic Pro, Photoshop, etc. I still have 40 gigs left, but I'm a little concerned for the future. The App Store by default installs to your applications folder, and I'm not sure, but I think it looks there for applications that need updates. I'm wondering what apps are safe to move to another hard drive and will be missing. What will I be missing updates if I do? Is there a good way to determine this? All right. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, the The short answer is that, yeah, Matt, any app that comes from Apple, so is a part of the system or comes from the Mac App Store, it, it is stored in the applications folder. And by golly, you want to leave it there. Um, you know, you mentioned you have Photoshop that you might be able to uh, put somewhere else. I would recommend reinstalling it and pointing it somewhere else during the installation process, uh, as opposed to just moving it, although moving it would probably work. But uh, but anything that you're relying on, any Apple updater like software update or the App Store, those uh, you got to leave in the applications folder. We, we've heard reports, you know, where people will move Safari out or something. And then they'll say, gosh, my Safari is not updating. It's like, yeah, the system doesn't know that you have it anymore because you've moved it. And, and that, so that's, that's the problem. Yeah. So a guideline is, so anything that's in software update, so you go to system preferences, software update, anything there, I'd say you have to leave wherever it's installed, which is pretty much any Apple software. I mean, I'm looking well, at and, and Safari, stuff from the App Store. iTunes. Correct. Because yeah. yeah, I think it expects it there. Yeah. I would say it's a safe bet is that most applications, if they do have, if they use a third party, and I think the most popular one is Sparkle, I think if you see in the help menu, typically it will be in the help menu if it says, you know, look for update. I would say if you see that in the help menu, then it's probably an app that's using Sparkle and you probably don't need to have it in the application folder. You should be able to put it somewhere else. Yeah, because it's just going to update from within the app and, and it can find itself. Well, that's yeah. my thing. And I think I've been through where, where I think Sparkle is smart enough where wherever the app is and using its its update functionality um, should be able to do it anywhere else. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think, you know, as more and more things move into the app store, I think you're you're kind of screwed. You've got to leave it all in the applications folder. I think that's like that's how it works. Moving on to Bradley. Speaking of applications, John. Oop, hold on. No. Oh, here we go, Bradley. Okay, I, I got to read this. Okay, so, oh yeah, go ahead. Let me... <laughs> All right. I don't know if I answered it, but hey. All right. Hey, guys. I've been in tech for a long, 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 long time. Most of it's spent in the Windows world, but the last four years, pretty much all Mac. Outstanding. I've got this problem happening to my MacBook Pro 2007 running the latest rev of Lion. Pretty much any time I install a new application, I have to launch it twice for it to work. The first time I launch the app, I get the typical startup message for all new applications, and I select launch. The icon bounces in the dock forever until I click on it, and then it closes. I launch it a second time, and it works great. The application launches, and everything works fine. This happens with app store purchases, download apps, you name it. Why does it always require two tries to get the new application launch? Any help would be appreciated. Well, I offered help, apparently. Uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a few things to, to look at T here. Tell them the solution. That, that Bradley found. And then, and then let's talk about kind of the other stuff to check too. Well, I think the solution he found was, uh, did, did he reinstall? He did um, combo updater. He, he reapplied a combo. Yeah. Updater. But you know, it's, it, that, that's a good thing to think about because the combo updater obviously puts data back out there. 
But it also runs a couple of things, one of them being a permissions repair, again, system wide permissions repair, which does impact uh, the applications folder and some temp uh, folders and and various things like that. So my guess is, especially based on what you're going to tell us about what you advised him to do, um, Mm -hmm. because one of the things you advised him to do is actually done during the reinstall of that. But um, but uh, since that didn't work for him, I'm guessing the permissions repair was the was the magic answer. Okay, but I believe some of the other things that I found here uh, may fix problems like this. So. One has to do is that Mac has this thing called the quarantine mechanism. And this is something that will come up and, and we've all seen this with recent versions of Mac OS 10 is that you download something from the internet and the first time you launch it, it'll say blah, blah is an application downloaded from the internet. Are you sure you want to open it? It'll tell you, you know, where it came from the date, uh, you know, uh, the server came from, and it's a good check to make sure that if you're going to run a new app that you were actually the one that downloaded it and it's, it's not some sneakware or malware or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so one, I found an article where you can enable and disable this on a per application basis. And this involves going to the terminal and saying default space, right space, com dot apple dot launch services, space, LS quarantine slash uh, space dash bull, which is Boolean. And then either no or yes. And, uh, and that can do it on uh Okay, on a per application basis. So yeah. one, maybe that 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 setting isn't quite right. Could be permissions things. Who knows? Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, what, what I mentioned there is a way to do it on a global basis. Right. Okay, I'm sorry. I got these switched. So what I just told you is a way to to disable it for everything. And maybe you want to do that. I don't know. I'd leave it on. Uh, usually when I see it come up, I just say yes anyways. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> So if you know what you're doing and, and you're in full control of your machine, then you, you may want to disable this warning on a global basis and that may prevent, uh, prevent launch problems. You can also do it on a per application basis and that requires a, a little different mojo. Another article that I found and this requires that you use the XATTR command, which I've oh. only heard of before now. So yeah, you say you hop in our pal, the terminal, you say X A T T R space dash D space com dot Apple dot quarantine space. And then the path to the application. And that will disable this warning on uh, a per application basis. So number two, yeah, those, number- are, those are pretty cool things. Those extended attributes. It allows the OS to have different, yeah, different little tips and tricks. It's good. And then the third thing, and this has come up in the past, but we're going to mention it again, is there's this thing called launch services. And, you know, I think that was the thing that was that, that was corrupted here. So the launch services database is buried somewhere in the OS. Uh, and it basically tells, well, it handles launching of applications, but also, well, it associates documents with applications, but I, I think it may have been related to this problem as well. Maybe it certainly will is one of the things that would be, I believe launch services is rebuilt uh, when the combo updater is applied, I believe. Uh, but obviously that didn't, that wasn't his solution because he tried that manually and it didn't, it didn't work. But Onyx is the way to, the, the way to do that. That's the way to, re, way to rebuild launch services. I mean, you can do it from the command line, but there's no reason to, no reason to go through that pain. Right. Right. So, Three things that could 
hinder your application launching experience and how to get around them. Cool. Uh, all right. We have, uh, we have a little bit of time left. We're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, we're collecting feedback and questions on our backup show, which we did last week. Um, and we will, uh, talk more about that. I think we'll, I think we'll save all of that because we don't have enough time to get through all of that. We'll save all of that for, for next week's show. And did you say uh, feedback, Dave, I did. Oh boy. Yeah, I did. But, but keep <laughs> bear with me here. Uh, and, uh, cause I'm trying, trying to keep the show on the tracks here. Uh, so we'll do the backup stuff next time. We've got a couple of tips to talk about and maybe a cool stuff found thing. So, uh, so let's dive into that. But first, um, I want to throw a question out there for everyone. Uh, Actually, you know what? I'll wait. I'll wait for that. Let's do the tips. Yeah. Let's keep this thing on the rails here. That's good. Uh, So uh, one tip that, uh, that I found very interesting, Adam uh, Christensen over at MacCast uh, offered me this tip with regards to spotlight in lion. And uh, he says, uh, he says uh, in the, uh, in the spirit of sharing cool unknown tips, I'm sure many of you knew in lion that when you hover over a result, from the spotlight menu bar, you get the preview, right? Now, I didn't know this, so this is interesting. But if you hover over a result, you get a little preview of it. It goes further than that. Adam writes, did you know that if you hold the command key down while viewing that preview, it will scroll, scroll through additional information at the bottom of the preview window? Shows you the reason for the spot, spotlight match and also the location of the info. Keep command down, keep command held down to let it scroll to even more additional info. So, yeah. So you there's there's very cool things in that spotlight menu. You just hover over the result and you start getting the preview and then the command key will let you dig even deeper and deeper. So thank you very much, Adam, for sharing that with us. He uh, he enlightened me a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I've been I've been waiting to, to throw it into the show. So that's good stuff. Uh, let's see. We will skip that one. We'll do, uh, yeah, this is a good one. So Boris, take it away. Hello, John and Dave. This is Boris from Frankfurt in Germany. I want to get back to shows 386 and 387 where you talked about email receipts. I think you're trying to solve a social problem with technology, which quite frankly almost never really works. When somebody sends an email receipt, usually people, um, don't think about, reading an email they expect that someone acts on an email while what really happens actually is you get a notification that someone opened and it, if it's only for a split second that email that you have sent um, it's no notification of some that someone has actually read it it's no notification that someone has actually understood the email they might think it's maybe not for them they might not get any sense of whatever you have written uh, and it's certainly no notification that someone is taking any action on it. So, um, as much as I appreciate the geeky discussion about um, changing uh, mail headers and the protocol, at the end of the day, you might just want to ask the person in your email in the very first sentence, uh, look, can you please get back to me on that on short notice? Or if something is really urgent, um, why don't you just give the guys a call? Just want to say that, maybe I'm rambling here, but I still think um, sometimes if you have a social problem, you shouldn't hit it with technology, but just, you know, get to the phone, get to the booth uh, and talk to the person rather than trying to find uh, the most geeky solution for something like that. Cheers. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's the you, absolutely. But but, you know, um, John, there there are. We've talked about this in the context of. And I don't know, I don't know that we stated this explicitly, but we've talked about it in the context of finding out if they've seen it without their knowledge that we know that they've seen it. Right. And 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 so, yeah, you in. in from that perspective, yeah, we're trying to solve a a social problem with technology, as Boris points out. And I can't agree more. We don't use the phone enough these days. You know, email is fantastic for communicating specific bits of information, but for conversation, it sucks. Um, that's just that's just me. Um, but and I'm curious to your thoughts on this. And then and then I actually have a use case for this that I want to I want to throw out there. Mm-hmm. But but if you have any quick thoughts on this, John, it, uh, quick thoughts. So why did I think uh, I won't mention the specific individual, but I actually had a kind of falling out with an individual who would not use any mechanism except a telephone to try to communicate with me. It's not a bad thing, man. But no, the problem is the, 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 the person in question who I you know, no longer speak to um, would not be flexible enough to use any form of communication other than telephone. And it usually involved uh, calling my phone and hanging up and not leaving a message, which, which I find kind of rude personally. And I said, you know, you can email me, you can Twitter me, you can do this, you can do that. And, and the person was, was not willing to change their communication style. So it was sad that, you know, it came to that. But, um, but I noticed this when I worked in the corporate workplace, you have to learn and adapt to everybody's preferences. Some people would respond immediately to emails. Some people would ignore them and they would respond immediately to voicemails. Some people, you would have to stop by their office and do a face-to-face. It, uh, so I, I agree. Boris is absolutely correct. Um, you can't just insist on people using one form of communication to, to do everything. You have to, everybody has their style and way of working and prioritizing their tasks based on what medium they're using. And you just got to take that into account. And sometimes it may require flexibility on your part. You may not want to go to someone's office and do a face to face, but you may have to. Sorry. <laughs> so that's that that's the, in a nutshell, that's my feedback. And I, I ran into it again. I observed it. I'm like, you know, if I if I email this guy, he's going to ignore me. If I yep. call him, he's going to respond immediately or I got to stop by his office and then I'm going to get what I need. So. So uh, I, th- there is um, I have a, I have a personal use case where this actually works out great now. For those of you that are using iMessage on your uh, iDevices now and even on your Macs, right? Uh, If you go to settings and messages on your iDevice, you can turn on iMessage uh, and then you can also turn on you can. There's an option. The second option right there is send red receipts. Now, normally when you send an iMessage to someone, uh, it comes up and it shows delivered underneath, which doesn't tell you that the person has seen it. It just tells you that I successfully got this message to their device, but no guarantees that they're going to see it or that they have seen it, but it's there. And that's all we have. Well, if that person has turned on uh, send red receipt, then as soon as it'll show delivered and then it'll change to red at and point and give you a time. And, uh, and for everybody in the family, we've turned on red receipts and it's really, really handy because if I'm going to send somebody a text message, I can then look and instead of wondering, right, look, like I've communicated information, meet us at such and such a time here or, you know, take the bus home today. We're not going to pick you up to one of the kids. We can look and say, OK, I know without a doubt, not only was the, de- the message delivered to uh, their device, 
but they actually read that message. And then that tells me I don't need to follow up. I don't need to call them. I don't need to panic. I know they've read it. And if they had any questions, they would call me back. So, but, it, but it's, but this is, we're not solving a social problem with this. We're merely using it in a way that everyone is on the same page. We've, we've discussed this ahead of time and it works out great because it, you know, we don't need acknowledgement back with, by having read the message, you know, that the person now has acknowledgement. It's a huge time saver. So, uh, so there, there are, you know, there are ways where this can work out very, very well. Uh, you know, the kids are in class. So, we, you know, if we text them at noon, we don't have to worry that we're you know going to inter- interrupt them at math or whatever. They check their phones when they before they leave school and they see, OK, yep, this is I know the plan for today. And then they don't have to call me back in the three minute window that they have to figure out whether they're taking the bus or going out front to find somebody in a car. And uh, and it works out really, really well. So so there there is a magic answer here. But but you're right. If you're trying to solve a social problem with technology, just pick up the phone. It's easier. In that case, so. or as I suggested, try the the means that you know the person. Right. <clears throat> well, that's prefers. it. Yes. If you've worked it out in advance, either explicitly with the person or just intuitively, then that's right. That's right. All right. We have uh, we have time for a couple of cool things found. I will let you guys get ready, and uh, I will kick it off with one from Phil. I believe I have Phil out here, but if I don't, then. Uh, yeah, I do. I have Phil I'm ready to kick it off. So Phil says, uh, I have a, I have found something called join.me. It is a great free browser based remote assistance app for windows, Mac and iPhone. Uh, it's actually really, really cool. Uh, I had an opportunity to use it. Uh, I did a, a phone conference with somebody the other day and they said, Oh yeah, I'll send you a join me link so you can see my screen while we're talking. And sure enough, I saw their screen while we were talking. Now, they didn't turn on the remote control part of it, but they certainly could have. And uh, and it's just joined on me. It worked out great. So uh, we'd had this in the queue actually for a couple of months. And then the other day after I was forced to use it, I thought, wait a minute, this really worked. And uh, and she was on a Windows machine, but it didn't matter. It just, you know, I just saw it on my Mac screen and went to the browser. It was it couldn't have been easier. So join dot me. It's free. How can you beat that? Everybody should use it. They could pay you to use it. Oh, uh, that's true. That would be fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's right. That's much better. You ask. Okay. They could be. Hey, there you go. All right. Pete's got his hand up. So uh, go. I do. I found a great <laughs> one uh, for us aging Mac geeks uh, and starting to need the bifocals. Uh, it's called the uh, night reader. Um, I swear I thought of it first. No, it doesn't matter because it's free. And that's the cool part about it. What it does, instead of just the flashlight portion of your iPhone 4 or iPhone 4S, it also turns on the camera so you can, and then zoom in if you need to. So you can read a menu in the dark at a restaurant, but you aren't having to hold it up to the side. You can actually use it and magnify it. Uh, another use if you need to get the model or serial number off that furnace down in the basement and you're kind of in a corner, you know, you want to get the That's dark areas. Awesome. Yeah, isn't that great? A brilliant thought of actually using what that uh, equipment's already on the phone. So that, that was really well thought out. And I'm glad Apple lets people do this. Yeah, no, that you, is you know so what cool. I mean. Yeah, because because if they didn't, they, at first they weren't letting people do the flashlight thing with the right, you right. know, with the deal, and then and then they, they got smart. I was really impressed. They just told people, look, okay, you can do this, but you have to put a disclaimer in your description that, that it's says gonna use your battery. It's going to chew your battery. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, it is what it is. Like, but, duh. Yeah, of yeah. course it's going to use a battery. So, it's a flashlight. Yeah. So, but it works. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, yeah I like that one. 
Then the other one that I stumbled across is really nice. It's called Free App Price Watch. And it basically, uh, you, it allows you to sort by uh, the genre of the apps or sort and filter by the rating. So if it's got a lot of good ratings, you can get apps that are rated higher. And they update it frequently. So you only get apps that are on sale for free. Or in, in some cases, there are apps that are marked down from 15 down to 10 bucks, or from 5 down to 3 or what have you. But uh, So if you want to track and save money on uh, the latest and greatest apps that are on sale or free, uh, free app price watch also free in the app store cool john do you have any cool stuff found this time around mm, not today nothing today all right well with that if you have found some cool stuff found make sure you let us know about it and uh the uh the 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 uh they found the band spit it out i found the band okay so michelle had a question which leads us into uh how you're going to contact us but uh michelle wrote she said uh i'd love to hear a show or a segment on time management and reminders uh i'm in no rush for this but i just wanted to know what everyone does with reminders for single households it's not a bad idea but when you have two or more people things can get a little crazy how do you manage them when one person would like reminders for someone else in the family doesn't need them how do you manage how you do reminders on your shared calendars and your personal calendars all of that stuff she says she has mail tags things busy cal and now reminders as part of iCloud uh she says, it seems we have all these great devices to help us manage our world, but then spend so much time figuring out how to make it all coexist. I'm starting to rethink paper and pen. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I have my own way, of course, but but uh, and John has his own way and Pete has his own way. But I, I really I'd like to do a segment where we kind of pull it all together from the get go. So instead of us sharing and then waiting a week to hear from what everybody else send in your stuff in advance and then we'll all share it uh, in one show. We'll pull it all together. So uh, so there you go. Now, if you have that information and you want to send it in, John, tell them how they can. Well, my first suggestion would be that you want to send an email to feedback at MacGeekab.com. That's feedback at MacGeekab.com for those of you that didn't hear. And this time, Dave, I have to agree with you. It's feedback at MacGeekab.com. That's right. Uh, you can call us at 206-666-GEEK to leave a voicemail, and that is... 433-5? That's right. How else can they find us, John? Well, you can go to the website, MacGeekGab.com. Where you know where you're going to find there? You're going to find a list of all the shows. And if you click on any of the shows, you will then see the lovingly handcrafted show notes. Uh, Skype as well. You can Skype your audio questions to MacGeekGab. What else do we want to remind people of? Oh, another thing, iTunes comments. We always love the iTunes comments. You can uh, leave a text comment. You can rate the podcast on a scale of five to five. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right, John. It's five to five. (laughs) Only five stars left. That's right. That's right. Yeah, minimum of five, maximum of five is, is possible out there. That's right. Uh, let's see. Oh, you can find us on Twitter. So uh, twitter.com slash MacGeekGab will tune you in to when the shows are out, when the show notes are posted, all of that good stuff. Twitter.com slash John F. Braun finds Mr. Braun on Twitter. Twitter.com slash Pilot Pete finds Pete. And Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton finds me. 
And you can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash MacGeekDev. Anything oh, else you got there? do, Tom? man? Did you see? Uh, I, I don't know. If you go to facebook.com slash MacGeekDev, I don't know. My opinion, Facebook, I don't know if I'd say they screwed it all up, but they, they rearranged everything. So if you see everything rearranged, it, it's not our that's, fault, man. That's the, new, that's the new way of Facebook. I don't right. like, sometimes I don't like new. The, the, old one, the old one to me... Now you got all this data all spread about in these different panes, and to me it doesn't make any sense as to what's where. I kind of like the whole, you know, sequential timeline-based things where, you know, the that I guess I just can't adapt like I used to. <laughs> That's right. Still, but you saw it the first time I went to it. I'm like, what, what did they do? Like, I couldn't even find. So, for yeah. example, both you and I have Facebook as ourselves, and it's Mac Geekab. I couldn't find how to switch before it was very clear. It was like, oh, you want you want to use this page as John or Dave or as Mac Geekab when you post things. Yeah, and I couldn't find it. I had to dig around, and it's like, oh, guys. Thankfully, our listeners don't have to worry about that. N- no, they don't. They just well, they have to see the mess, but yeah. No. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. You know, uh, we do have our premium podcast uh, for twenty five bucks. You get uh, six months worth of. Premium, which gets you two extra episodes per month, gets you access to all of those that we create. Uh, it gets you access to the entire back catalog, not just a premium, but of everything going all the way back to the beginning. And uh, and of course, you get access to the special uh, email address that's reserved only for premium members. What, what, what is that? Well, we tell them in the premium show, John. Oh, right. And, right. and our undying gratitude for absolutely six months. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's undying for six months. Is that how it works, John? You've got six months to live. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston for his help in converting this show to AAC. He's also the host of the We Have Communicators podcast, an excellent show all about mobile stuff. So go check that out, too. Cashfly.com, of course, provides all the bandwidth for us and for you to get this podcast. Uh, the podcast marketplace includes BB Edit from Barebone Software, Text Expander, as you know, from Smile, and Gazelle to sell all your old electronics. Also, VMware with their coupon MGG. Gets 10% off VMware Fusion. Thanks a lot, folks. We will see you on Thursday for a premium show, and then again a week from today on Monday for Mac Geek 391. Until then, have fun. Don't get caught. Yeah. Made up.